Today's disaster is one that I think is a little bit more well-known locally, not completely as unknown as the Sophia, not as widely known, of course, as the Ocean Gate disaster, but more locally centralized to Alberta and BC. Today, we're going to talk about the Frank Slide, which happened in Frank, Alberta. I've definitely visited this as a child. The pictures I was looking at while researching the case made it clear that somewhere in my memory, they're stored, but I don't remember much else about it. But this is why I bring it to you, so that you all across Canada and around the world can know about the deadliest landslide in Canadian history. This is Canadian Disasters, and I'm Rachel Stewart. 100 million years ago, the Crow's Nest Pass, which is the lowest valley in elevation through the Rocky Mountains between Alberta and British Columbia, forms. The first evidence we have of any human activity within the valley comes nearly 11,000 years ago, just after an ice age. And by 1000 BCE, there's even evidence of a village nearby. Now, near this village that was found in this valley, there is a mountain, which is now known as Turtle Mountain. But that wasn't always its name. You see, the Blackfoot and Kootenai peoples who lived nearby called it thusly, either the mountain that walks or the mountain that moves slowly. They wouldn't even camp nearby this mountain. They were worried about it. Even David Thompson, who was known as Kukusint, or the Stargazer, by some indigenous tribes, did not pass through this area of the Crow's Nest Valley. Now, why it's called Crow's Nest Pass is often debated. Some believe it is because crows literally nest their babies in the valley. Others believe it's called Crow's Nest because the Crow people of Montana used to live in this area. The first prospector to enter Crow's Nest Pass while searching for coal is a man named Michael Phillips in 1873. When he arrives, he thinks he's hit the jackpot. Not only does he not have to climb the peaks of any mountains to get through, but there is coal aplenty to be found along this route. He eventually ends up where the town of Fernie sits today, talking loudly about what he's found. Over 20 years later, the Canadian Pacific Railway chose to build through the Crow's Nest Pass. Why? Well, it's a shorter route through Alberta, and it doesn't disturb any existing railway lines by other companies. This route also showed no major engineering feats that they would have to accomplish. Other than one right at the start near Lethbridge, but they managed to circumnavigate that for 20 years before building the bridge that sits atop the Old Man River. It's amazing that they only had to do this one thing, because given how hard building the Canadian Pacific Railway through Rogers Pass was, this is easy pickings by comparison. 
Construction begins on the Lethbridge to Kootenay Landing Line in 1897. By October of 1898, the route is complete. Upon landing in Kootenay Landing, sorry for the double there, you could actually take a boat up Kootenay Lake and eventually end up in Nelson. And this is when the golden era of Western immigration begins. Now, happily, the Canadian Pacific Railway was also able to use the numerous seams of coal in the area to their advantage. Not only was it powering the homes and the livelihoods of the incoming immigrants, but CPR was also using it to fuel their own trains. Win-win in their minds. By 1901, two men saddle up to the area. They decide it's the perfect place for a coal mine. Their names are Henry Frank, for whom the town of Frank is actually named, and Samuel Gable. They arrive and they spend $30,000 to acquire mine rights for their company there, called the Canadian American Coal and Coke Company. Now, Frank is decidedly American. He barely spends any time in the town named after him. At one point in his life, Frank is even mayor of Butte, Montana. But Samuel does stay in Frank, building a stately home and grateful to be back in the land of his birth, even though he spent most of his life in New York and Ohio. A lively celebration takes place on September 10th, 1901, which formally recognizes and incorporates Frank as a town. The mine, now open, sits inside of the base of Turtle Mountain. Turtle Mountain is named by a rancher named Louis Garnett. He was convinced the mountain looked like a turtle, so there you go. Henry and Samuel must have thought they hit the jackpot with their mine. Not only was this the first one opened in the very lucrative Crow's Nest Pass, but coal was falling out of the ceiling. That's not an exaggeration. The way that they built the mines, in massive underground chambers and with near-vertical vaults that were set deep into the mountain, meant that with little effort, the mine could produce up to 2,000 pounds of coal a day. And sure, if sometimes the walls would shake and teams would come in in the morning to see that the supports they'd built were now just splinters, and sometimes more coal than usual fell from the ceiling, well, that was okay. It's just more money, after all. Safety. Not a huge concern for the Canadian-American Coal and Coke Company. By 1903, Frank is a bustling town. It rivals many in the American West, with wooden sidewalks and tons of amenities along Dominion Avenue. There are two restaurants, a photography studio, and DJ McIntyre's Hall, which was used for concerts, dances, lodge meetings, drinking, and religious services, among other things. The Imperial Hotel, one of three in the town, is noted as one of the most luxurious in the Northwest Territories at the time. 
Alberta won't become a province for another two years. This hotel boasted steam and heat and electric lights. And it was quite close to the train station. The town even has its own newspaper, started only a month after it was founded by Harry Matheson, called the Frank Sentinel. After a year and a half in business, neither Harry's spelling nor his typeset had improved much. But it's their own. And at the time of the slide, there are 600 people registered as living in the town of Frank. And word on the street is that Frank is poised to be the next Pittsburgh. Standing like a sentinel, 2,200 meters tall, guarding the town, is Turtle Mountain. Nobody can prepare for what comes next. The winter of 1928 into 1929 was a particularly cold one. Snowfall was heavy in the mountains. When April finally came, it was unseasonably warm, leading to rapid melting of the snow on top of Turtle Mountain. But on April 28th, a cold snap hit, so all of the snow that had been melting down the mountainside now froze in place. It got trapped in cracks and fissures throughout the mountain. What happens when water freezes? Well, it expands. And with this expansion, the structural integrity of the mountain fails. 4.05 a.m., Wednesday, April 29, 1903. Most of the town of Frank is sleeping soundly. For a few, it's an unusual night. Lillian Clark, only 15 years old, is sleeping in the boarding house for the evening. She works at the boarding house during the day, tending to the rooms and making sure the miners that sleep there are comfortable. Normally, she would walk home afterwards, often in the dark. However, on this night, the owners convince her to stay over. It's her first time sleeping away from home. A few hundred meters away at the Union Hotel, Bob Chestnut is sleeping soundly. He's a newbie in town, having arrived by train only ten days ago, He's been a miner for the last nine. At the coal mine, three men find their way to the surface for their lunch break. They're part of the nighttime crew, who are mostly responsible for keeping the structural integrity of the tunnels. They sit together and chat, drinking their tea and swapping stories as a freight train pulls in. The freight train that arrives is carrying an additional three men. As they pull in near the mine, the engineer realizes once again that the Spokane Flyer, a CPR passenger train carrying people west from Lethbridge, was behind schedule. So they were in no rush to pick up their coal, since they had to wait for the Spokane Flyer to pass. For 10 a.m., an almighty roar sounds from the peak of the mountain. The miners and the freight train. The miners 
and the freight train team look up in horror to see millions of tons of rock cascading towards them. One humongous piece of limestone over a kilometer wide has slipped from the peak, creating massive boulders, some of which are larger than a three-story apartment building. Many of these boulders create sparks as they ram into each other, tumbling down the mountain. The engineer on the freight train leaps into action. He calls for his companions to quickly jump on the train and sends it full speed across the bridge, over the Crow's Nest River, and out of what he believes to be the danger zone. Seconds after they cross this bridge, everyone looks back to see it collapse. They also see the three miners on their lunch break running full speed towards them. A moment later, the miners are swallowed by rock. The train chugs to safety. Many in the town are awoken by the sound. Bob Chestnut awakes and turns to his sleeping companion. He is fully convinced he's about to experience a true Alberta hailstorm. But his companion is deathly pale and informs him he's certain this is something much worse than a hailstorm. At his home, Jim Warrington is also under the assumption that the sound he just heard was hail. It's not until he looks out his bedroom window that he realizes the view has changed. He pulls himself up, realizing he's got a broken leg. And as he pulls himself to the window, he sees that his house is now in a different spot than it had been when he went to sleep. As 110 million tons of rock come shooting down the mountain at a speed of 120 kilometers an hour, the town of Frank is directly in its path. When the landslide finally ceases, some 100 seconds later, whole houses, streets, and tent camps have been wiped out. The sound of the landslide is so powerful, it's heard by people in Calgary and Cochrane, 234 kilometers away. Rescue begins shortly after, as people begin rushing into the rocks to find family members, friends, and loved ones. There is a pressing problem for our train men, despite having made it to safety. Sid Choquette, who's one of the coal men working on the train, realizes that the Spokane Flyer is due at any moment. Only the train tracks that they're on are now covered in boulders. He enlists the help of his partner, determined to make it over the rock slide to warn the incoming train. They set off. After only a few hundred meters, the other man turns back. Between the dusty air and the huge, sharp boulders, he thinks this is a fool's errand. Sid presses on. Back in Frank, Lester Ackroyd wakes up, surprised to find himself under the floor of his house. He's still wrapped in his quilt. 
Feeling around a little bit, he manages to find a small hole that he wriggles through. As he does, he notices a sharp pain in his stomach. He makes it to the top of the rocks and is shocked to see most of his street now gone. Rescuers find him and bring him to medical attention. Part of his floor is now a giant splinter in his abdomen. When doctors remove it, some feathers from his quilt come with it. The rest of the Ackroyd family perish under the rubble. Lillian Clark races from the boarding house to her family home. She finds it completely gone. Lillian is the only survivor of her family as well. As day begins to dawn, rescuers scramble over rocks in the hopes of finding survivors. All told, 23 survivors are pulled from the wreckage. The most miraculous survivor is a small baby whose mother had groped in the mud until she found her daughter blue-faced, not breathing. Her mother scooped the mud from her baby's mouth and nose until she could breathe again. Two members of the Life family, older sisters, are found muddy, but still in bed. They're actually found after people were walking on the roof of their attic bedroom. Later, Bob Chestnut will find the rest of the Leich family deceased. Actually, not quite. See, a few hours later, an infant is spotted. Reports differ as to where she is found. Some say a bale of hay. Some say a pile of garbage. Some say under the eave of a roof. But wherever she's found, she's later identified as Marion Leich, the youngest member of the family. The three Leich sisters survive. Two brothers and their parents do not. After a two-kilometer hike, Sid slides down the last of the boulder field, where the train tracks are clear. He keeps pushing, just in time to see the Spokane Flyer come flying around the bend. And yes, pun 100% intended. Sid manages to flag the train down with just enough time to get them to come to a stop before the boulders. And they hit them. It would have added another 80 people to the death toll. One passenger later claimed that Sid's nerves were basically shot by the time he reached them. But a few hours later, Sid will help lead passengers carrying their luggage back over the boulder field to where the rest of the town stands. For Sid's efforts, the Canadian Pacific Railway gives him a letter of commendation and a $25 check. It's worth about $3,500 today. Back at the town, no one is able to recall how many miners were underground when the landslide hit. Most guesses put it at about 50. In reality, there are 17 men working under the mountain. When they heard the slide, they quickly made their way to the mine entrance. The mine entrance 
that is now completely blocked by rubble. Not to be deterred, the miners decide to go to the side entrance. This is also blocked, except this time it's by gushing water rather than rock. So, in keeping with the classic, can't go over it, can't go under it, can't go around it, the men decide they've got to go through it. They're going to dig their way out. They find a big seam of coal, correctly reckoning that it is already softer than limestone, and that the water will have made it even softer. They work in pairs for the next twelve and a half hours. By the end, only three miners have the strength to keep digging in the rapidly depleting oxygen supply. But at 5 p.m. on the 29th, they push through to the sunshine. All told, they dug through 20 feet of coal and 9 feet of limestone to make it to the surface. All 17 miners survive. In some cases, they are the only surviving members of their families. In a happy twist of fate, 128 CPR workers were not killed in the tragedy. They had been scheduled for a pickup in Morrissey, British Columbia, the day before, to come to work at Frank. But the train never stopped to pick them up, thus saving their lives. Twelve bodies are pulled out of the rubble. The schoolhouse now functions as their morgue. By the end of the search, 64 missing are registered residents of Frank. But it's believed that another 50 transient workers, whose tents had been in the path of the landslide, also died. The death toll is set at 90. It remains Canada's deadliest landslide. Police and press quickly made their way to the town. Press were... Not quite as stringent on journalistic standards as they are today. The first reports coming out of the town, particularly from the Calgary Herald, claimed that everybody had died. And another story quickly circulated that the only person to have survived the Frank Slide was a tiny baby girl who had no name or family and was decided to be christened Frankie Slide. It's believed that this was actually Marion-like, and the story got twisted a little bit. I wish I could say that in the aftermath of the landslide, money and time were devoted to helping the survivors and coping with their loss. But that would be a lie. The two priorities were getting the rail line functioning again and reopening the mine. Police had brought geological surveyors with them as well, who determined that the town was no longer safe, and that another landslide could occur at any moment. Police evacuated the town, but nine days later, the surveyists decided it was okay to come back, and so the people went right back into Frank. It took 17 days for the train to go through. And a month later, the mine would also reopen. And when the mine reopens, another happy twist occurs. You see, something else emerges from the rubble. A horse named Charlie. He was one of the three horses used in the mine. 
How on earth did Charlie survive a month in the mine? He drank from puddles, and he ate the bark off the splintering timbers, keeping the tunnels structurally sound. His survival was heralded across the town, and some miners decided to give Charlie a celebration. He got all of the oats and all of the brandy that he could drink and eat. Unfortunately, after a month of eating and drinking very little, Charlie had a little bit too much brandy. He died later that day. No formal inquiry into what actually happened to cause the landslide takes place. Not because it wasn't needed. I mean, trust me, it was. But the amount of coal coming out of Turtle Mountain was too lucrative to risk stopping it. So the town rebuilt, the mine reopened, and life continued. Three years later, Frank's population had nearly doubled. By 1910, inspections are occurring once more on Turtle Mountain and the mine. A federal mine inspector takes a look, and he is horrified by what he sees. He immediately insists that the mine shut down, that it is too dangerous to work there anymore, and that the whole town of Frank needs to move. You see, he also feels it likely that another landslide will occur. While the town of Frank heeds this warning, over the coming year, people will attach their homes to wagons and move them to another location nearby, restarting the town of Frank in a much safer place. It still stands there today. The mine, however, well, they aren't moving. Company representatives end up making the journey to Edmonton to visit with the Minister for Mining. There, they convince him that he needs to overrule the federal mine inspector and allow them to continue working. Unsurprisingly, the Minister for Mining agrees, and so the mine continues. In 1915, another federal mine inspector writes to a friend that the reason for the Frank slide was the mine itself. But the mine had already spent a lot of money and time convincing everyone it was an act of God that caused the landslide. Maybe an earthquake. Today it is believed that it was in fact a combination of the melting snow and the structural damage from the mines that caused the landslide. The mine finally shuts down in 1918. Not for any safety reasons only because diesel was replacing coal as the fuel source du jour. The town is quiet until 1922. The building of the Crow's Nest Highway is approaching. They end up building the highway directly through part of the landslide. While digging, they come across a house whose roof is now only a foot from the floor. Inside the house are six skeletons. Given the location, it's believed that these were the remains of Lillian Clark's family. In the 70s, a group tried to make the Frank Slide into a national historic site. While this didn't end up working, 
It has been declared a provincial heritage site, and an interpretive center has been built. The latest thing to be added to Frank? Seismic equipment. It sends out daily information that helps scientists to understand when exactly the next landslide will occur. Because yes, everybody agrees, another landslide will be coming. For now, Turtle Mountain moves approximately a centimeter a year. Who knows how long it will be until it walks again. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this has been Canadian Disasters. True North Strong and Destructive.